0: Have you ever had doubts about your faith? If you have, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. In our passage today, the person that Jesus describes as the greatest man ever born is having doubts. Last week, Pastor Tim taught us about the centurion's faith, and today we learn about John the Baptist's doubts. And those two passages are very, they're parallel passages. The centurion sends messengers to Jesus because he believes. John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus because he doubts. The Gentile Roman soldier believes, but the Jewish prophet is having second thoughts. So I've titled the message today, let's see There we go. The doubter that Jesus praises. And we'll be in Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. R.C. Sproul covered this text in two sermons. John MacArthur did it in seven sermons. I will do it in one. (laughs) And this is a difficult passage John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah, and now he's not even sure that Jesus is the Messiah. Scholars have been so bothered by this passage that some have said, no, 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 John didn't really have doubts. He was just trying to encourage his disciples and transfer their allegiance to Jesus before he died. However, at this point, John does not know that he's going to die soon. And in verse 22, Jesus says, go and tell John, implying that this message is truly for John. Jesus gives John this great compliment. And I would say it is one of the four greatest compliments ever given in chronological order. Number one, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. That's last week's sermon. Number two, Jesus praises John the Baptist. That's this week's sermon. Number three, the Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed girl. You remember Jesus says, it's not right to give bread to the dogs. And she says, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And Jesus praises her for her faith. And then number four, on the cross, Jesus asks John to take care of his mother. So I'd say those are the four Greatest compliments ever given. And arguably, the compliment Jesus gives to John the Baptist is the greatest of the four. But those encouraging words do not reach John's ears. Jesus sends John's disciples away before he says how great John is. John has been rotting in prison for about six months. You'd think John could use the encouragement, but no. And Jesus gives John no hope that he will get out of prison, probably because he won't. Jesus' final remark to John basically is a rebuke, saying, Don't be offended. And if I'm John, I'm offended. I did my best for you, Jesus, and this is what I get. Jesus says, John is the greatest man ever born. But then he says in the very next breath that the least in the kingdom is greater than John. How can that be? Wasn't Jesus born? Isn't John in the kingdom? Then Jesus talks about children playing pretend games in the marketplace, acting out happy weddings and sad funerals. And we're like, ah, what's that about? And it seems like Jesus and John couldn't be more different. We learn that John was a teetotaler, but Jesus ate, drank, and went to parties with the worst sinners in Israel. And then we end in verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children, and hopefully that clears it all up for you. So please stand for the reading of God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases And plagues and evil spirits. And on many who are blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. God, I love your word. It's so powerful and it has turned my life upside down. And I I thank you for the power of your word, the power of your gospel and the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives. And God, I I pray that we would not forget this great power that is available to us. And I pray that, that your gospel power would empower us through this day and through this week as we seek to live for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there's a lot to work through here. Now, if you remember four words, you'll have the gist of this text. Question and response, praise and rebuke. So first, we have John's question, are you the one? Second, Jesus' response, and he actually gives three responses to John, then Jesus praises John and he rebukes those people who refused to repent at the preaching of John. R.C. Sproul asked his seminary students this question, who is the last prophet in the Old Testament? And he answered his own question saying, it's John the Baptist, to which his students were up in arms. They're like, no, 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 no. John the Baptist is in the New Testament. And that's true. But John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament era. After 400 years of silence, before Jesus comes on the scene, we're still doing temple worship. We're living under the law. And John is the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People questioned whether John was the Messiah. He said, I am not. And he added, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. They pressed him. Then who are you? He responded in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John's disciples complained. They said, Jesus is baptizing more people than us. John responded simply, He must increase, I must decrease. It was John who pointed to Jesus and proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. And it was John who baptized Jesus. But now, John has gotten himself into some hot water. He spoke out against Herod for stealing his brother's wife. And Herod had him arrested for it. So John is now wasting away in prison he is in, the, in a pit at the bottom of the fortress of Machaerus, just east of the Dead Sea. And John's words have come true. Jesus has increased and John has decreased. John hears about the miracles of Jesus, likely the ones Pastor Tim preached about last week, including the healing of the centurion's servant and the raising of the widow's son, And it seems that prison has been getting to John. He gets confused about the plan and who Jesus is. So he sends two of his disciples to ask this question. Number one, John's question, are you the one? Look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Am I the one? John, you said it yourself. Behold the Lamb of God. We expect Jesus to be a bit frustrated by this question. We saw how pleased he was with the centurion. Jesus marvels at his faith. And now one of John's best guys is questioning his identity. But let's clarify. John is not doubting God or the purposes of God. He knew that God would send the Messiah to save them. He was still looking forward to the Messiah. He says, are you the one or should we look for another? John had in no way given up on the hope of Israel. He just wasn't sure at this point what Jesus' role was and whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. It's interesting, though. He still trusts Jesus. And he brings his doubts to Jesus so that Jesus can strengthen his faith. And this morning in prayer before church, I gathered with Kelly and Tim, your pastor, Pastor Tim. He prayed for you Who have doubts that you would run to God's Word. John has doubts and he goes to Jesus. Often, when people doubt, they stop praying, they stop reading the Word, they stop going to church, they stop going to God. So when you have doubt and you step away from the resources of God that are meant to strengthen your faith, it's like pouring sugar on cancer. Your doubt grows. But that's not what John does. He draws near to Jesus. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you want to strengthen your faith, don't run away from God but draw near to him. In times of doubt, we need Jesus. We need the word and we need the body of Christ more than ever. So John asks, are you the one? Number two, Jesus' response. And Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. He gives John three responses. Response number one is simply watch. Look at verse 21. In that hour, in that hour, in front of John's two disciples who are looking for an answer to this question, are you the one? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. When they asked, are you the one? John could have simply responded, yep, go tell John. I mean, Jesus could have responded. (laughs) But instead, he showed them the proof. Isn't that better than just giving a verbal answer? We have sayings. The proof is in the? Talk is? Petra sings a song. There's too much talk and not enough walk. So Jesus shows the answer to his question. Verse 22, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This will help John. Just tell him what you've seen. Response number two I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus alludes to prophecies from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Verse 22 And he answered them Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus lists all these great miracles building up to the raising of the dead. And at that point, you would think that Jesus has landed on his greatest work. How does it get any better than a resurrection from the dead? But Jesus has one more to include. The one that is the primary reason he came. The one that is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, which he read in his first synagogue appearance in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown of Nazareth. What is the greatest of Jesus' works? The poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus came to be the good news, and Jesus came to preach the good news. And likely this threw John off because John preached coming judgment. But Jesus preached good news. John thought Jesus was going to enact the judgment that he had been preaching. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna clean house. And Jesus will do that on his second return. First return, second time coming, there we go. 2 Timothy 4.1, we see that. But the focus of the first visit of Jesus is to preach the gospel. And Jesus and John, they are the ultimate good cop, bad cop. The world needed to know that judgment was coming. And that was John's job. And the world needed to know that there was a way to escape that judgment. And that was the purpose of Jesus' first coming. For you who are visiting today, For you who are exploring religion, you need to heed the message from both cops. The bad cop says, your sin condemns you and judgment is coming. But Jesus has good news for you. He died on the cross for your sin. If you believe, you will be saved from that judgment. Now you question, how do I know that Jesus can save me? Because three days after he died, he rose from the dead. It's good news. But it's not good news for everyone. It's good news for the poor. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls them the poor in spirit. This is not about how much money you have in the bank. These are the ones who realize their spiritual bankruptcy their sinfulness and their need of a savior. And they cry out to Jesus and they beg him to save them. Only beggars get in. The good news is only for the poor. Jesus has one more response for John. Response number three, the blessing on your life is determined by your response to me. That's true for John, it's true for us. The blessing on your life is determined by your response to Jesus Christ. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If anyone could be offended by Jesus, it would be John. John has obeyed the Lord. He has prepared the way for Jesus. He has proclaimed righteousness and repentance. And at this very moment, after doing everything right, he is rotting in jail for it. And soon he will be decapitated and have his head paraded around at a party because of a young lady who danced before Herod. John could have questioned, really? Jesus, is this what you plan for me? You're not gonna get me out of jail. You're not gonna save my life. In short, Jesus says to John, Yes, I am the one. Do not be offended by me. John, this won't make sense to you. Yes, you did what I asked. You prepared the way. And now as you continue to walk this road of suffering that will lead to your death, I want you to walk by faith. To walk in a manner that will bring blessing on your life. Now, you question, how in the world is that blessing? But it was great blessing. John's faith was strengthened. He knew that he was right where God wanted him to be. He was suffering for righteousness' sake, storing up treasure in heaven. Just like the apostles who would later rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' sake. Now, let me turn this on you. Are you offended by Jesus? Does it bother you that only his merits will get you into heaven? That his cross is proof that you are a dirty, rotten sinner? Does it rub you wrong that he hangs out with whores, robbers, and murderers? Will you reject Jesus because he's pro-life? Because he says marriage is between a man and a woman. Because he says that the husband is the head of the wife. Because he only made two genders and he doesn't let you pick which one you want. Will you be offended by Jesus because he allows suffering in your life? Sometimes, Very great suffering that will only increase until the point of your death. Does it irritate you that Jesus says that he's right and everyone else is wrong? Only Jesus, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Buddha, not Hare Krishna. None of them can save you. Jesus says, only me. Jesus says, Anyone who refuses to believe in me, who refuses to bow their knee and subject themselves to my lordship, will have hell to pay. Are you offended by Jesus? Jesus, with a heart full of love, he would say to you today, Blessed is the one who is not offended. By me, John, I'm not busting you out of prison. And I'm not going to save your life. For you, it will be prison followed by execution. Can you trust me as you go through that? Because if you do, you will be blessed. John's disciples leave. And then number three... Jesus praises John. Look at verse 24. It's interesting, you know, it's a little thought came to my mind. Some of us are so hesitant to give compliments. We're so afraid, you know, that we're gonna compliment people. But Jesus doesn't seem really afraid to, although he does send the disciples away first, so I don't see. Okay, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. John was not one who lived in luxury, but rather simplicity. His focus was not on pleasing people or building his IRA. It wasn't on acquiring wealth. Rather, he sought to do the will of God at all costs. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind, but he was a man. A man of integrity and strength. A man of boldness and power. Jesus continued, verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the final Old Testament prophet who with his very own finger would point the world to the Messiah. John is the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus. Arguably, John is the last messenger who prepared the way. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God was preparing the way for the arrival of his son. Going back all the way to Genesis, Eve's seed would conquer Satan. Abraham's descendants would bless the world. The Passover and the sacrificial system would help us to understand what John meant when he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sacrifice that will be made for your sin. Moses spoke of a future prophet like me. Moses gave the law so that we could know that we are sinners and in need of a savior, Jesus Christ. Abraham's family and the royal line of kings would all lead up to the great king. And the prophet's foretold his coming. Can you see it? Everything going back all the way to Genesis 1-1 was meant to point our attention to Jesus. But John would see the Messiah with his very own eyes. He would speak to the actual people who would experience the arrival of Jesus. Isaiah 40 verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. John called these people to repent, to turn away from their sin. And he pointed Jesus out as the Messiah. John was the greatest of the prophets. It's interesting that Jesus waits until John's disciples have left before praising John. It seems that Jesus doesn't necessarily want these compliments getting back to John. But why not? If John heard this, it would be so encouraging to him. He might respond, it's all worth it. Jesus thinks I'm great. But Jesus lets the messengers leave first. Maybe he fears these statements might lead to pride for John, might lessen his suffering and thus lessen his reward. We don't really know. But after John's disciples leave, Jesus responds to that question that is looming in everyone's minds Has John gone off the rails? Is John not as great as we thought he was? To which Jesus responds, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. It doesn't get any better than John. You think of some of the Old Testament greats, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Ezra, Daniel, none of them, none are greater than John. But there's one little exception. Second half of verse 28. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest man ever. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus is the master at saying much with few words. In the Old Testament era, as far as men of faith and integrity, John is the greatest bar none. But in the kingdom of God, we are made perfectly righteous in Christ. We are made more righteous than John the Baptist. And in that sense, we are greater than John. John had a front row seat to seeing the beginning of the kingdom of God. And then he died. He was not able to see and experience the great blessings that have been lavished upon us. He died before the crucifixion, the resurrection, before the ascension of Christ, and before the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost. You and I have experienced things that John the Baptist could only have imagined. The least in the kingdom is greater than John. In verse 29, the people respond to Jesus' statement. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So we have two responses, one from the baptized and one from the unbaptized. So first, those baptized by John, they declare that God is just, that he's righteous, that he's good. This is the response of the commoners and the sinners. They praise God. But the unbaptized, it says, they rejected God's purpose for their lives. Jesus honors John, and these are the two responses. Sinners praise the God who spoke through John, But the quote, righteous ones, those who were too good to repent and get baptized, the Pharisees and the experts of the law, they do not declare the justice of God, but rather they reject his purpose for their lives. God's purpose was for them to acknowledge their sinfulness and receive Christ, not to lead, but to follow, not to look good, but to be forgiven. Not to proclaim works righteousness, but rather gospel grace. How sad. They rejected the purposes of God for their lives. John wasting away and dying in prison for the cause of Christ. That's something to rejoice about. I would much prefer that for my children than this. They rejected God's purpose for their lives. They refused to repent and believe the gospel. John came, no change. Jesus came, no change. Good cop, bad cop, it made no difference. Warnings of judgment, promises of blessing, no response. They were unresponsive to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They had their own agenda for their lives. And so they rejected God's plan for their lives. Number four, Jesus rebukes the good people. Now I have to warn you, Pastor Tim did not give me a passage with a happy ending. But I'm hoping your response to the call to repent. And your response to Jesus' good news of the gospel will lead you to the point where the happy ending is what happens after this morning as you respond to the gospel in your own lives. So Jesus rebukes the good people. So he speaks to these people and he says, verse 31 To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. We played happy music, and you didn't get happy. We played sad music, and you didn't get sad. You refused to rejoice at the wedding. You wouldn't cry at the funeral. You should have been cut to the heart by the rebuke of John, but you didn't flinch. You should have been leaping for joy at the good news of Jesus, but you didn't even crack a smile. You're dead on the inside. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says, for everything there is a season And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Timing is very important. God calls us to have the right response at the right time. Rejoice at the wedding cry at the funeral. Romans 12:15, the apostle Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. How do you do that? You have got to get your focus off of yourself. You've got to forget about your image. Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks of you, and you've got to start thinking of others. You have to care about their victories and care about their sorrows. At a wedding, you've got to lay aside the burdens of your life and dwell upon the joy of the bride and the groom because it's time to celebrate. At a funeral, you lay aside your jokes and your happy times and you grieve with the family. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to be serious. John the Baptist was serious. Verse 33, Jesus said, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. You just dismiss what John says. Ah, he's crazy. Look how he dresses. Look how he eats. But Jesus is different. Verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You have an excuse for everything. You dismiss John, you dismiss Jesus as well. If you are dismissive of the warnings of John and you are dismissive of the gospel of Jesus, There is no hope for you. Our joking is dangerous. Sometimes we like to joke all the time. Never want to take anything seriously. We joke about how great we are. Who's number one? You're going down. And maybe there's a place for that at times. But the problem is this. Often, that's all we do or it's most of what we do. The result is that we never show true humility. We never honor others above ourselves. We're too busy bragging, even if it's just in jest. And when things get serious, we joke so we don't have to deal with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you need to stop your joking and get serious with God. Also, our grumpiness is dangerous. Our worship is mediocre. We care so much about what other people think. We are so dignified that we have a hard time celebrating. In 2 Samuel six twenty one through 22, in the face of one who mocks David for his exuberance in worship, he responds... I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more undignified than this. In short, he's saying, I don't care what you think. I care what he thinks. I don't care about my image or making myself look good, but I am obsessed with Jesus. Jesus rebukes those who refuse to repent And those who refuse to rejoice, and he says, look at verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Someone is going to get proved right, and someone is going to get proved wrong. We're going to look at the results. As children are the results of a marriage, so wisdom is proven true by the results it produces. Wisdom mourns when it's appropriate. And it's wise to rejoice at the right time. Like the followers of John and the followers of Jesus. They repented at the rebuke of John. They sang and celebrated at the good news of Jesus. That was wisdom. And look at the fruit. Acts 17 verse 6 refers to these men who have turned the world upside down. You and I are here today because of godly men and women who repented of their sin, who rejoiced at the coming of Jesus, and who went on, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to change the world. Their spiritual children are the results. These disciples have brought hope and joy and life to the world. The fruit of their lives is the proof. They are the wise ones. Their response to John and to Jesus was very wise indeed. And their lives have borne much fruit. Their lives have produced many spiritual children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Why don't you stand and let's pray? Oh, heavenly Father, I want to be—I want to be counted amongst this number of men who turned the world upside down. I want to be with the wise, whose lives produce fruit, good fruit. Me to be a man. Who has godly sorrow, who sorrows over his sin, who's quick to repent, quick to confess his sin to his wife and his children and others, Lord. And help me be one who rejoices at the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you offer good news to the poor, that you give honor to whom honor is due to godly men like the centurion and John the Baptist. Thank you that you offer forgiveness and righteousness to those who repent and believe. Father, give us godly sorrow so that we grieve over our sin. Cut us to the heart. This morning, we repent of our sin. Lord, too often we have been stoics when you call us to mourn. We've been indifferent and unemotional when you call us to celebrate. Please fill our hearts with joy. Let gospel grace amaze us. Pray that you would cause us to rejoice in exuberant worship, as David said, to get even more undignified than this. Lord, I pray that you would bless our repentance, bless our rejoicing, and bless us as we go to worship you now. In Jesus' name.